What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. John Kostakos got his start as an entrepreneur in 1984 when he and his brother designed a t-shirt that they called Purple Rain. It was a crossover play between the hit song from Prince and the Washington Huskies' dominant defense. The shirt sold like gangbusters, and the Costaco brothers were in business. After selling t-shirts for a few years, John was in his local sports memorabilia store looking for his next business opportunity. Not one to overcomplicate things, John asked the store owner what the number one requested item was that they didn't carry. The answer? Posters of Kenny Easley, the Seattle Seahawks All-Pro Safety. Sparked with inspiration and a knack for combining sports and pop culture, John went to work. He reached out to the Seahawks, pitched the idea to Kenny Easley's manager, and before you know it, he had scheduled a photo shoot with one of his sports idols. He got his one yes and was on his way to success. John and his brother struck gold. They would create and sell more than 30 million posters of some of the most iconic athletes of all time. Willie Mays, Michael Jordan, John Elway, Bo Jackson, Roger Clemens, Larry Bird, on and on and on. If you were a sports fan and a teenager in the 90s, I would bet that you had a Costacos brother poster in your room. I had one, Shaquille O'Neal's Rim Shaker. It was sick. Fast forward to 2021, John Costacos has found a new way to breathe life into an old business, turning his posters into NFTs and selling the digital rights of his designs. Let's see what he's up to and how these iconic posters will be made into digital collectibles. Enjoy this episode with John Costacos. John, thanks for being here one day after Thanksgiving. How was your holiday, sir? I ate too much. It was great. <laughs> ate too much. Yeah. Thanks for spending time with us. Uh, we know you got a lot going on. You, sir, are iconic, and I don't feel like it's fair because nobody even really knows who, that you're iconic. But I do know that when I was a teenager growing up, your work was in like every one of my buddy's bedrooms. And I don't think that's an understatement. You do these really cool pop culture and sports memorabilia posters, correct? Can you take us, or are you used to, can you take us a little bit back into that and what you are most known for and famous for? Yeah, we, we started making personality posters uh, of these players, you know, back in the 1986 was the first one. We were, you know, shortly out of college and we had this idea and uh, and it just took off. And so we were taking players and doing themes with them, you know, and, and the first one was Kenny Easley from the Seahawks. And so we did a little background on him. Well, let me go back. The reason we did that poster, the idea that we got was from being in a sporting goods store. We had created a shirt, trademarked the phrase, real men wear black, and made these shirts for the Raiders. And uh, I was in one of the stores in Seattle that sold the, sold the, uh, the shirts. It was called the locker room. And I asked a girl in there that was working, I said, hey, what do, what do people ask for that you don't have? And she said, immediately said, a poster of Kenny Easley. So, you know, I figure, <laughs> I just, I, I, why not follow up on that? You're young and stupid, too stupid to know what can get in your way, which is nice because you just see the possibilities. How old were you at the time? 
23, I think, 23, 23. So I called up the Seahawks, uh, or maybe I was 24. I think I just turned 24. I called the Seahawks and said, uh, and I asked them, uh, how do I get a hold of Kenny Easley's agent? And so they sent me the PR department and they gave me Lee Steinberg's number. Now, this was a little daunting because Lee Steinberg was the biggest agent name uh, at the time. He was the one agent that I knew the name of, you know, and I would see him interviewed all the time. So, yeah, I got the number, called up and left a message. And uh, I got a phone call back from Jeff Morad, who was a brand new agent working in in Lee's office, uh, his new partner. And he called back. And I tell people to this day, uh, if you have an idea for something, you're one yes answer from, from being on your way. And Kenny Easley was, he had just been, I think the previous year, he was a defensive player of the year. Why would he say yes to somebody who knew nothing about photography or graphic design uh, and had never made a poster before? And I was lucky. Uh, cause he agreed. Yeah. Why did us. he though? <laughs> like why? Well, I mean, so then you got to spend some time with him. Did you get a chance to ask him that question? No, I didn't ask him why. I mean, I did spend the time with him. So what Jeff said was that Kenny's involved in the stuff he does and he wanted to talk to you. And so, uh, he arranged a breakfast for me at a place called Hector's in Kirkland, Washington, which was near the Seahawks headquarters at the time. And, uh, I went there and I, I got dressed up <laughs> nicely and, and I, I had done my research on him. I knew a lot about his college career and his, and, and, you know, obviously being in Seattle, his pro career. So somebody had called him the enforcer, you know, and he's the enforcer on the defense. I think that was in college. So uh, I asked him, why aren't there any posters of you? And he said, well, I'm a safety, you know, what are they going to do? Just have me running down the field or, or standing there. So, I, you know, so he wasn't really interested in that. So what if we do something, you know, about, you know, personality thing. Like, and I told him, somebody called him the, the enforcer. What if we did that? He said, well, what do you want to make it look like? So I just started improvising at the time. I said, we do a tough guy thing, you know, in a dark alley, you know, in front of the stadium. And he thought about it and he liked it. And he said, yes. And, and he did ask, he said, why should I uh, go with you guys? And I said, because we'll put everything that we have into this to make it a success. We're nothing else. This is everything. I mean, it was on. It was true. I wasn't BSing. I mean, it was like, listen, we, we're selling some T-shirts, but uh, the T-shirt that I'd done for the University of Washington defense uh, a year earlier uh, was the best-selling T-shirt that they had had ever. And I did tell them that. I said, well, the Purple Rain shirt we did for the Huskies defense last year outsold everything they've ever done before. So let's see what happens. Well, let's take us back even to that then. Like, what got you into T-shirts? And I, I mean... Were you always an entrepreneur? Were you the seven-year-old pushing lawnmowers in your neighborhood? No, I was, I was, um, my dad had his own business. He was in the parking and rental car business. And I didn't really have a choice. I was going to go into business with my dad. Nobody really uh, gave me any other option, you know, and it was a good business for him. You know, he he worked really hard. I I learned, I learned about work ethic from him because he worked so much, you know, but he had merged his business with somebody else while I was in college. So there was no place for me really in that anymore other than in a semi-corporate environment. And they didn't want to do that. So I was always thinking about what could I do for myself? I mean, I think even though I was programmed to go into business and into the family business, 
I think I was always thinking of things and I always thought t-shirts, there's a big market. I wanted to do something where there's a big market because everybody wears t-shirts. And so I was thinking about that. And I, I can tell my mom was disappointed when I graduated and I started, you know, I'm going to make t-shirts, you know. What made those purple rain shirts such a success? Because you kind of said, I mean, that kind of led to the, the idea of your posters of taking the sports world and then taking the pop culture world and merging those together. So you took like the Washington colors and then kind of played off Prince's purple rain. D did you see the potential in that when you had that idea or was that kind of, yeah, there it is. The purple rain. Oh, sweet. <laughs> um, was that a, did you see the potential in that? Or was it just kind of like, Hey, I have this idea. I'm going to do these shirts. We'll see how it goes. What made those such a success? I just thought about, I thought, well, you know, I can make a little money. You know, there's not a big investment when you're starting, you create a t-shirt. And my best friend lived in LA at the time. And I called Tom up and I said, Hey, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Can you draw something up for me? He's a graphic designer. So and he did it and it was that was the first version of it and i loved it and so i thought you know what's it going to cost me you know i pay him a little bit for the design and take it to a t-shirt place and make the shirts and sell them and so what helped was the the team was really good they were really good and it you know the team hadn't been a big powerhouse up until that point it, they'd been a solid program an up and coming program but that was the best team one of the best teams they ever had and the defense was, I, I, they scored, I think they averaged over one touchdown a game, the defense did, they were so good. And so it didn't hurt. Plus I knew some guys on the team and sold some shirts to them and they were wearing them around and it got on the news and then, you know, they were calling themselves purple ring. It was like social media today. How did the college respond to that? Were they, were they on board? Was it kind of a fight with copyright stuff? How did they react to that shirt? They liked it because. I think it helped bring a lot of national attention. They started calling them, you know, Purple Rain. When, you know, when you're watching the broadcast on Saturday, you know, if they're on TV, they they use that name. So I think the university liked it. One of the hard parts was getting getting them into the university bookstore to sell because I don't know the the buyer he didn't like me for some reason or he didn't like the shirt, and so I just had all my friends start calling up, you know, and saying, "Hey, do you have do you have the Purple Rain shirt? Do you have the Purple Rain shirt?" So one time I went in. And I asked the girl if they had them and, and she didn't know who I was. She didn't know I was the guy that made them. And she said, oh, uh, no, but we're getting a lot of calls for them. And we had, she actually produced a clipboard and said, yeah, we have to, anytime somebody asks for it, we have to, um, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, you know, we have to write it down. So that's how I got in the bookstore. Sometimes you just got to do, you got to use some, you know, guerrilla tactics, I guess. Yeah. How did you get the gumption to do that? Because sometimes to start a business, you need to do that and you're not, you're not doing anything wrong really, but like, it's hard for people to get out of their own way. Kind of like we talked about and be willing to do what they need to do, like create a buzz for this shirt. What about you at the age of 22 or as a kid basically made you so excited and so motivated to make this work? Well, it was selling everywhere else, you know? And so I knew it would sell if I got in the bookstore. So, you know, I wanted him to get out of his own way and let them start buying the shirts. I became friends with him. You became friends with him after that? Yeah. You know, I used to see him years later, you know, 20 years later, I'd see him at Husky games and stuff. And he'd, hey, John, how are you? So what's it like being a, a kid and then having this cool idea, being excited about it, putting on a t-shirt and then seemingly overnight, you're national acclaim. What's going through your head? I don't know. I think, I think it was more like, what, what do I do next? 
you know, how did I get this lucky and what do I do next? I think, it, I think that was really what it was. It was kind of, a, wow, I feel really lucky, but now what do I do? I think I was thinking, what's the next thing I can do? Cause this isn't going to last forever, you know, but I did understand if you hit a hot market in sports, you know, if you hit a hot market, um, the fans and, and the fans kind of come together. It was like that, you know, it was like the Legion of Boom when the Seahawks had that. Everybody loved the Legion of Boom. And it just gives it, there's something fun about that when when right. when the fans have something like that to rally around. Well, those things happen a lot. The beast mode extravaganza was a thing for a while, right? Yeah. He would have been a great poster, Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you get this first deal to do a poster. And does it take off? Like you post it. This is new, right? You're blazing a new trail. Nobody's really tying sports to pop culture like you are at this point. Or are you following in somebody's footsteps that you've? I would say the, my hero in this business was Peter Moore. And he was the, the uh, head of design at Nike. And he designed the first Air Jordans, the first couple versions of the Air Jordans. Um, I didn't know his name at the time, but the George Gervin Iceman poster, you know, that was really cool. And he did that. And I saw that. And I, I don't know that I was referencing it, but I remember just, you know, once in a while you'd see a, a, an advertisement in Sports Illustrated with a player and, you know, and they'd have something a little bit personality style for that guy. And so I think it just seemed natural to, to I mean, that was more fun to me than just an, a pure action shot. So I don't know that I ever really thought that I was following that, but Peter Moore was, that guy's my hero. He did some really cool stuff. And I finally got to meet him a couple of years ago, which was really great. What's that like to meet the hero? The, even if you, in the background, you didn't even know at the time, that's fun to reflect on. Well, it was great. I mean, I was, I went down to Portland uh, and, you know, I brought him a copy of my book, you know, of our book, the, the walls of fame book. And, you know, it was like, it was so cool just meeting that guy and telling and hearing stories. All I wanted to hear was his stories about what he was doing. And he was really gracious and really cool and told me, you know, we talked about my posters and what he liked. And, you know, he was really great. So let me pull up some names here because we've talked about a little bit about your posters. But for people who, like I said, it's a travesty. We don't know who you are. You worked with Warren Moon, Troy Aikman, Pud Rodriguez, Roger Clemens, Will Clark. I mean, this list goes on and on and on. What were some of your big breakthrough athletes? Obviously, your first one, right? But then after that, were there some some ones that stood out to you? Jim McMahon. Jim McMahon. So here's what happened. We made the deal with Kenny Beasley right before uh, Thanksgiving in 1985. And so we, and we, we decided to shoot it in May of 86. So in the meantime, we were selling the real men were black posters or shirts. And we were down in LA. We were in the Raiders parking lot because the Raiders were in LA at the time. We were down in their parking lot and Lester Hayes comes walking by. So we introduced ourselves and started talking to him and said, well, why don't we do a poster? You were doing a poster of Kenny Eza. Would you be interested? And he said, sure. And he gave me his number, you know, and I'm like, I'm looking at my brother and we're going, we just got Lester Hayes's like home phone number, you know, <laughs> you know, that was just, you know, it was really kind of surreal. And you're just and, some schmuck in the parking lot with a box of t-shirts. Why would he give yeah. you his number? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he is, he is still, I'm in touch with him to this day. He's still one of my absolute favorites and one of the best guys I met in that business. But so we talked to him about doing, so we had planned on that. And then 
we shot easily in in May of 86. We shot Lester. He flew up to Seattle. We shot that in June of 86. And right around that time, in the middle of June or late June, I said to my brother, oh, my God, I got an idea for Jim McMahon. And, and Jim was, he was maybe the biggest personality in sports at the time because he, he just won the Super Bowl and that whole rebel attitude and everything. And he was on a lot of commercials and he was a big personality. And so uh, I came up with Mad Mac, you know, and uh, I mean, I love the Mad Max movies and the road war. And I, and I, my brother, we had a big debate about it, whether or not, listen, we don't know what we're doing. Okay. We've never printed or packaged or shipped a poster. We just shot two of them. What are we doing thinking about a third one? And we, we agreed that, well, we sort of agreed. <laughs> we disagreed at first, but it was this. I don't even know if we can afford to print three of them. We don't know if we have enough money to print how many we're going to need and get everything ready to ship and boxes and everything. But if we can get Jim McMahon, we can get anybody. And so I sent a letter to him with a sketch and to his agent. And he called me back like a week later. And he, Steve Zucker, great guy from Chicago. We lost him a couple of years ago. But he, he called me up and said, uh, hey, this is Steve Zucker. I'm uh, uh, Zucker, sorry, pronunciation. This is Steve Zucker. I'm Jim McMahon's agent. Yeah, Jim loves your idea and he, he wants to do it. Okay, but we got to shoot it uh, within nine days. <laughs> Because he's going to training camp. And so no internet in 1986, you know, and, uh, you know, fax machines are pretty new at the time, right? So how do we, so we called our friends in Chicago and they helped us set everything up and we scrambled and we walked out and, and got it done. And when we got that one, that one, um, and we sent him a copy of, of the Kenny Easley uh, shoot so he could see what our work looked like. But uh, so Kenny helped us get that one. But we printed McMahon first because a month month later they were playing um, at Wembley Stadium against the Cowboys in the first, I think it was the first American Bowl. And so we printed that one first. And then Sports Illustrated got a hold of it and USA Today got a hold of it and the AP ran it on the wire. And once it ran on those, everybody was calling. Everybody. Okay, so how let's break this down because we're we hear these great stories, but you you've kind of unintentionally built this case study of how to promote this business, right? You had this great idea and you just kept putting yourself in front of these people and like identifying these weird opportunities, like, like the bowl games. And, you know, why wouldn't you put out the first one you cut first, but you saw these opportunities along the way. Was that, we know that you have the entrepreneur background from your dad, but you also went in business with your brother, right? And he helped with a lot of the business side of this. Is that correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're complete opposites personality wise, but um, we were both, you know, we were talking a lot about what do we do here? What do we do there? And it was a thing where he met, uh, he met a Sports Illustrated writer on the plane. So this is what happened. McMahon's agent said, hey, listen, maybe we ought to sell these. We might have an opportunity for you to sell these in, in London because the Bears are playing in London. Really? Tell us more. So he gave us information. And my brother actually went on the team flight with them. And he met a Sports Illustrated writer while he was on there, you know, and then, you know, I think the posters were really cool. It makes an easy story because it's fun. There's something fun about it. I mean, if you're a writer and, you know, and there's nothing else like that out there, you got Jim McMahon dressed up like the road warrior and you got, 
a headband with a little, you know, a little jab at uh, Pete Pete uh, Roselle on there. You know, I don't know if you if you've seen that on there. I did not know. Okay, this is fun too. Yeah, tell some of the details about this. Okay, so McMahon, if for those that don't know, McMahon wore an Adidas headband on the sideline during one of the games in the previous season, and he got fined five thousand dollars by Pete Roselle, the commissioner. A week later, he wears a headband that says Roselle on it. He gets fined, fined another five thousand dollars by the commissioner. <laughs> so there's a headband on his on his belt. You know, hanging from his attached to his belt that says "Hi Pete" on it. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so that you know, it wasn't the the we knew the people at the NFL and they wouldn't give us a license. You know, they, we knew them from the real men wear black shirts, and we wanted to get a license for posters, and they wouldn't give it to us. But we knew we could use. You know, we have a bear, a bear, a bear cub in there. You know, in the shot, but you know that that's a whole other story. How you get a live bear cub to be in a shoot? You know, back then. <laughs> But, but you want to hear the story about the bear cub? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm yeah, intrigued. <laughs> Our friends, there was a lot of luck involved. We had met a couple of guys at this convention. It was a, um, a Greek convention down in uh, Dallas. It's that kind of thing where your, you know, your Greek parents send you there to hope that you'll marry a Greek, you know, and it's a free vacation, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, we met these these guys from Chicago, these two brothers. They're really good guys, Bill and George Canopiotis. And so, you know, with nobody on the ground in Chicago, they were the ones that helped us out with everything. And we we're like, well, can we get a live, you know, you know, can we find like a stuffed bear or a live bear cub or something like that? And they found this guy in Wisconsin that had animals and he rented them for photo shoots. Real, just, just some dude that had a bear cub that was three hours away. So what would they do? They put it in the bed of their truck and just drive it down to Chicago. <laughs> I feel like we need that guy on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the bear king. That's one of the things I want to ask you because you kind of alluded to not being able to use any of the NFL's branding or any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, the high Pete was, you know, kind of Jim's little uh, jab at, at, uh, at Pete Rosell for finding him, which he said he never had to pay the fines. And it was my little jab at the NFL for not giving us a license or not being willing to work with us. And that came into play a little later when we did the Chicago Vice uh, poster with him and Walter Payton the following year, because we were going to shoot it with, you know, it was Miami Vice, you know, it was a real easy concept. And, and Walter Payton brought a car with a trunk full of guns. We were going to shoot him with footballs and most of the shots are with footballs in their hands. And, but Wally got guns. <laughs> and so we <laughs> shot that with guns and we're like, yeah, the NFL's not gonna like this. <laughs> so, you know. So and what was their response? They gave us a license. You know. I mean, look, we weren't. We didn't do it for that reason. We literally we ended up in that shot because it, that's what that's what Walter liked. He wanted. That's what he wanted. And I think that they deliberately screwed up the shots with them holding footballs because he he really wanted the guns. He thought it'd be funny. You know, back then nobody. I mean, I suppose it. it Think about this. We put, think about how different that is 35 years later. We had two NFL players dressed like the, the Miami Vice guys holding guns. You imagine if we did that today. Yeah, backlash. Yeah, you probably wouldn't go viral. Yeah, but I, you know, it was a different time. And so, and so the NFL, I think, I think by then they realized actually, I think they, they realized it was a really smart guy at the head of NFL properties. His name was John Bellow. And he believed that the market decides, let the market decide. His, attitude for licensing was if you have an idea 
and you want to put the money behind it and go out there and try and sell something with our logos on it, good for you because the market will decide if your product works or not. And so I think they saw that our stuff was selling. So that's why they gave us the license. But they, there was also some benefit that they could you know, uh, have some say over the content. What was it like working with these athletes on like an artistic level? Because that's putting them in a different space, I feel like. But you were talking about Walter Payton wanted his photo to look a certain way. So he's making sure that he's sabotaging things that don't look like that. What was that experience working with them in that space? It was fun. It was a lot of fun because we went to the Pro Bowl after our first season. We got eight posters because we shot later that season. Uh, I think we shot uh, Steve Largent, Howie Long, Lawrence Taylor, Mark Gastineau. I'm trying to think. And so we, we, you know, we, we did pretty well. And then we went to the Pro Bowl. And I don't remember who suggested we do that, but that was in Hawaii. It was the week after Super Bowl. So every NFL all-star was there and they, most of those guys had seen our posters and we're all staying at the same hotel because uh, I know one of the agents helped us out and God has helped us get a room at that same hotel. And it wasn't, the NFL didn't take the entire hotel. It was the Hilton Hawaiian village and all of the players were there. So we're, you know, we just started talking to guys and we got everybody's phone number and we we're coming up with concepts. We we're going up to the room and say, well, we do this this guy or this guy or this guy and we were just talking to him when one guy you know and and having you know i don't remember which of our clients were yeah steve largent was a pro bowler that year and so now we're talking to him and he introduced us to somebody somebody else introduced us to somebody and then and in the subsequent years that that was a really great way to meet everybody because everybody that you would want to do a poster of was there and so we could talk to him directly and it it was great being able to talk to the player himself because no, nah, no, nah, I don't, I don't like that idea, but you know, they used to call me this or these guys call me that. And, you know, there was this one thing that we did and, you know, I kind of like that idea. And so, you know, we, we'd hear what they, their input was really great. The best posters were telling a guy about the concept, like telling Ron, Ronnie Lott designated hitter and seeing the, seeing like this really fun smile on his face you know, what do you want to look like? And I'm like, ah, well, you know, tell him, I'm just, you know, telling him right at the top of my head, well, if we put you in an alley and make you look like a hitman, you know, and, uh, okay. You know, and that, that, that was always really fun. And it was great having their buy-in and their participation. What was it about you guys that got so many yeses? Cause I feel like those guys probably get a thousand requests every time they're out in public. You guys are getting yeses from almost all of them. What was it that, that got you a yes instead of a no so many times? I don't know. I think, I think it was part of the momentum of that, of the new market, the new type of thing. Part of it was, it was creating an image of somebody that, that really kind of was somewhat definitive in the way that the guy played, you know, like, or the way his personality was. I mean, Mad Mac was perfect for Jim McMahon, you know, the, going to Charles Barkley, you get off my backboard, <laughs> you know, Charles, Charles is like, a, you know, don't mess with Charles, you know, he's, he was awesome. But anyway, the, the, the just having their, having that, getting them in the studio and, and I would say ahead of time, I think us coming up with creative ideas and talking to them and giving them an idea so that they could visualize it and then they could tell us what they like or give us another idea and we would just build on it. And then we knew what we wanted to make it look like. 
when then we'd get to the studio and if something wasn't looking right and a perfect example is the get off my backboard with charles barkley he'd won the rebounding title we were going to have him sitting on the back on on the rim uh you know with his arms crossed you know with attitude and it just didn't look as good as we thought it would so we had him standing stand up on the rim and it looked better so it was fun working with the guy that was the best part of it was working directly with the guys what was and i think you alluded to this a little bit in the beginning but what was your background in this because you're the artistic director if you will it feels like did you have Zero. photography design Zero. okay so so where is this expression of art coming from in you then apparently i probably should have taken art <laughs> I, guess, I don't know I, I i always liked writing i was i was good at creative writing and things like that but uh visually i never i never and I, we neither of us knew anything about art graphic design or photography but it was you know we talked to the photographers like we, we would learn like crazy we were soaking everything up so when we shot you know, with Corky Truen, uh, who's the Seahawks photographer back then, still works for the Seahawks. Corky shot the Kenny Easley poster and Lester Hayes. So when we're saying, well, what do you think about this? And Corky said, well, we can add that to it. And if we if we want some bright color in the background, we could get a fog machine and put a, a, a colored gel back there and blast that out. And so, and we're like, okay, how does that work? And what about this? What about that? We were reading everything we could, every photographer that that we met we look at his other work and say oh how did you do this and how did you do that we just learned you just ask questions ask it's what i call asking the next question because if you have an idea like if we had an idea we wanted to have this effect in it and they said you know uh you know can we do this and they said no well why not that's the next question they said oh well, if we were shooting in a studio, we could because we can control the environment. If we're shooting outside, it won't work, you know, because the wind's going to carry the fog, you know, out of there, that kind of thing. You know, they just ask the next question. Well, is there a way we could do this if we wanted to have that effect? No, we can't do it there, but you might be able to do it in post-production. And this was before uh, Photoshop. So we called the photo lab and said, hey, can you do this effect of these lasers coming out of Lawrence Taylor's fingers? You know, yeah how you know they would tell us we're like okay so we talked to the photographer we do this this is what the photo lab's going to do we, it was just ask a ton of questions always ask the next question and keep asking questions until you figure it out how did you learn that skill was that is that something you've always done like when you were a kid did you just ask nine million questions to where your mom was like hey stop it because i said so yeah <laughs> yeah you know what my mom and i talked about this recently she did say that that i was always i liked taking things apart and learning how they work but she said i asked lots of questions well why is it this way or why does this this or that it's, it's probably really annoying you know probably every one of my ex-girlfriends probably yeah i probably asked too many i don't, I don't know i'm always I, i'm pretty inquisitive if you have, if I have an idea in my head, what I'd realize I want to make it look like this. So there was always a, there were certain compromises because there was cost and there was, I mean, there was cost and then there was, you know, limitations technologically because we we're shooting on film and we didn't have Photoshop. There was a thing called the Cytex machine and the Cytex was a computer that you could do some changes, but it was, you know, if you're an ad agency, you know, got a ton of money and big budgets to be able to fix things and change colors and stuff. But the Cytex machine was $600 an hour to do 
what a five-year-old could do in 30 seconds on their iPad today. That was due to, uh, you know, the rising cost. That was in the 80s and 90s, right? So that's even yeah a couple grand an hour. Yeah, so we had limitations. And so if there was a concept or a sketch, we wanted to make it look like, well, how do we make it look like this? And then you had to decide, well, we can do this, but it's going to cost this much to build the set. And it was too much. So we'd be, okay, how else can we do it? So we're always trying to say, how can we make the poster great without doing that? Or, you know, like with the Bosworth one, we knew that that it was worth spending the money on the on that big set that we did. So you just, it was, it was visualize it and, and then try and make it what you can't, what you exactly what you want. And if you can't, you ask why, and you really confirm that you can't. And then what's plan B and then, okay, we agree on plan B. Is it doable? You get it. You talk to a photographer in the photo lab and they're like, okay, plan B works. We'll do that. So there's a lot of hands playing into this. A lot of decision makers. I'm trying to get the, this is the Terminator one, right? I'm trying to get it pulled up to look at. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with the lasers. Okay. So you, you're you building this proverbial bridge as you're crossing it. You said you didn't have the photography. You didn't have the set building. But you're doing some big things. Like you said, there wasn't Photoshop. So these, some of these are full sets, right? That you're building and having to capture that in the image. So at what point you have this poster company, but it sounds like you have a team of people around you that's 50 people. How are you piecing this together with no resources? Or did you have enough saved up from your T-shirts? How do you make this gap? It was, it was work. Uh, it was work, you know, 16, 18 hour days from, you know, morning to night until we couldn't do it all, then hire somebody and then work them eight hours a day or 10 and us working, you know, 16 or 18 hours until we couldn't get it all done and then hire somebody. That's how we did it. Cause we wanted to learn everything. We learned from, we rolled our own posters. It was Thanksgiving Day in 1986. I spent the entire day rolling Steve Largent posters on Thanksgiving Day uh, and got a flat tack. No, we ran it. Ray and I ran out of gas on the way home, too, because we weren't paying attention. We completely forgot. I completely forgot. And then the next morning, we were delivering all these boxes on Black Friday because we just got it printed in time. Yeah, that that's something I feel like most people you hear this story, it feels like this instant success. Like we made shirts and then we got Kenny Easley and then it just blew up. But all of the, like 16, 18 hour days, we're working seven days a week. That's the stuff nobody gets yeah. to see about what made this work. It was seven days for three years. And I remember getting crap from my dad because I missed church. <laughs> it's like, you know, for three years. Let's take a day off. Come to church with me in the morning. Yeah. What is, I saw your parents' response because your dad was an entrepreneur, obviously, but your mom, there's a video we saw of her that was like, I wanted to be doctors and lawyers, not in oh, yeah. posters. What the heck? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That was, that was, that was mom. Mom. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think mom was, um, yeah. Mom, you know, my parents were the, both of them were the children of Greek immigrants, you know? And, you know, my, I learned from the time I was a kid, it was pounding in my head. You're getting, you know, you're getting educated because my grandparents had like third and fifth grade educations, you know, that was it. And uh, something like that, they had grade school education. That's all they were able to do. And so my parents, they made sure that their children went to college, you know, that was a big deal. 
And so they wanted us to go and, you know, always do, you know, make the next generation be better. My mom knew that, you know, doctors and lawyers were respectable, you know, well-paying professions. And then, you know, here I am making something that anybody else could make. How did that expectation influence your work? Obviously, you still went down the path and did what you wanted to do. But I know from personal experience, a lot of people we talk to, that family influence plays a huge role, that expectation that comes from from the parents. Well, apparently it didn't work. (laughs) You You weren't too concerned with it. (laughs) It was, I I could just tell, I mean, I think I I could just tell mom was kind of supportive. I mean, you gotta understand my brother and I, we were living in the same house and there was a basketball hoop in the, you know, on the telephone pole in front of the house. So while we were waiting in, in between, you know, we made the deal with Kenny easily in, in November T-shirt sales, you know, once the Super Bowl was over, once the playoffs were over, that ended up, you know, at the end of the year, you know, so we've got January through June when we shot or through May when we shot Easley's poster, there wasn't a whole lot to do. We hadn't even shot the poster. So we were just, you know, kind of waiting. And so we're out there shooting hoops. We had no money. You know, like, and so we're just sitting around, you know, going over to mom's house to eat. We're just shooting hoops. So we'll be like, all right you shoot 10 out of 10 and see how or 10, 10 shots and see how many free throws you make. And then it's my turn. And then we'd always just go, geez, we got to get jobs. We'd be laughing about our predicament, you know? And then, you know, little did we know that six months later, we weren't going to have time to do anything. Yeah. Blew up on you. So you were talking about the, the Bosworth one, the land of Boz. You said this is the major studio one. Well, it was the most expensive and most elaborate set that we did. Um, it was built by a really amazing guy named Mike Dillon. His company's Dillon Works. And he had worked at uh, Disney. You know, and this guy knew how to make, you know, he worked, I think they built, I forgot the name of the group at Disney, but it's like real amazing. He, the guy could make anything out of anything. You make trees out of fiberglass, you know, you could make stuff look real. And he, he did this whole set for him. Like, hey, we need a yellow brick road and we need, you know, this is what we need. And he just, he was amazing. He's still doing it too. His company's awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. We'll have to link to some of these. And yeah, like I'm saying, these were in every high school boy's bedroom growing up, right? Like, it, have you ever sat and reflected on that? What does that mean to you to have art? Literally, there's an art exhibit now with your name on it, even. I don't think we ever really thought about it at the time. You know, the fuel was this when the player would call us up after we sent him his poster. Because remember, it's not like we could email him a copy of what it turned out. We had to ship him. So here's a box we'd ship to him or his family or his wife or his, you know, his mom. And we'd get a phone call from whoever. You know, sometimes it was a guy's wife. Sometimes it was him. Sometimes it was the mom thanking us and telling us how, how much they liked it. That meant everything. You know, there, there, was, there were a few things. I, I, we never, I don't think that we ever really realized it. We just wanted to make posters that kids loved. And we knew we'd make money if we did. If we and but there was one moment I was at the Pro Bowl one year and somebody called my name. He said Costagos. And I hear this, Costagos, Costagos brothers. And I looked over who had said that. He had heard my name and he looked over to see where which one, you know, who was calling one of the Costagos brothers. And it was Emmett Smith. And uh I said, Yeah, it's me. And he's like, so and and he was he wanted to talk to us about doing something. You know, he liked, and he, I don't remember which posters that he liked, but he was telling us which ones he liked. And I, and there's something else that I learned recently when, if you saw that SB Nation piece, is that the one you saw? 
Yeah, yes, that's it. it. Yep. Yeah, there was, there was, I was there when they were interviewing Sean Kemp and he talked about being at the, this didn't, it was edited out. It didn't end up making the final piece, but he said, look, when I was at the all-star game, all the guys were coming up and talking about my poster and how much they loved it. And we were all talking about each other's posters. And so, you know, it was, a, some of that is right place, right time. But I think we, we did a good product. We created a good product. Yeah. And it I think the really cool thing is you allow them to make it an expression of themselves also. So now it becomes this thing that they can share with each other and compare with each other. And this is, this is a good maybe segue, but what is that experience for you to hear them say that they're sharing them or they're comparing them? And then in a crowd, Emmett Smith recognizes you, like you're starting to come to this to claim and be recognized. What was that journey like for you all? I know it was just weird. It was, it was, I don't know, weird's the right word. It was, you wonder, wow, how did I get this lucky to do something that I'm having fun with and making money with and meeting a lot of interesting people and, you know, and, and ball players, professional athletes are fun to hang out with. They're confident and cocky and fun. And you know how guys like to give each other crap about everything? Those guys do it to the maximum, you know? So that the banter back and forth and the practical jokes and the, ribbing and the you know that kind of stuff it's just it's really it's fun it was really fun for us and when i wrote the book you know i was writing all the stories and i remember like i felt like i was being redundant because i was saying yeah he was a great guy he was a great guy he was they were all generally great to work with you know and we and they had fun and maybe this was something they got to have fun with plus we worked fast so we didn't keep them in the studio all day like when they shoot something for their shoe company they're there for like six or eight hours, you know, with us, we get them in and out in an hour. Wow. How'd you manage that? Because these are, some of these are big productions. They look like. Well, number one, we knew we were shooting a poster, you know, not an ad for GQ that had to be perfect. So we didn't even, we realized pretty quickly makeup takes a lot of time and it doesn't make much difference. So after like two, three posters, we just stopped using makeup. So what if the guy's head's a little shiny, <laughs> he'll wipe it down. You know, that was better than, you know, so that, that was part of it. We just, we'd get him in and, and we would, because we knew that the players talked to each other, if we worked fast, we had a better shot at getting anybody in the studio. It was how do we get an edge in every way? And it was, if the player, I forgot which one, but one of them early on said, wow, that was fast. And you know, and then realizing, talking to agents and stuff, you know, we, we learned pretty quickly that if we work fast, the player is more likely to work with us. I mean, nobody ever said that directly, but it became pretty clear because guys were happy when we got them out. And there were some times when we had, uh, when we told the guy we'd have him done, you know, in a certain time limit. Uh, and we said, no, we got to finish. He's got to be out. You know, we're getting our time limit. And the guy, and every time the guy said, no, no, it's okay because they were having fun. I mean, it was fun. Our sets are fun. Was there something you did to create that environment of fun or, or was it just what you were doing in general? I don't think there's anything we thought of to do it, but it was, I think they knew that we were just constantly thinking like when I'm, when we're behind the camera, we're like, what about this? What about that? What do you think? Okay. Raise your elbow just a little bit. You know, I want you to look mean or you don't look mean enough, you know, those kinds of things. And, I think that we were so constantly, they could see that we were constantly 
searching for the, the best shot we could get. And I think they like that. That's my best guess. And, and we, and we do, we do lots of practical jokes. You know, we, we did a few, you know, we had some fun and we had some jokes played on us. Like first time I met Walter Payton, we, it was the Chicago vice poster. All right. I'd met McMahon before a few times. So here we are. And, uh, and we're and McMahon is in the locker room at the stadium and at Chicago stadium and Walter Payton comes in and we had a problem because it was cold and Bill Smith, who is the, the team photographer and he was the bulls photographer. Also, he, he, uh, it was cold and there, there must've been some moisture inside the lens and it froze the lens. So it wasn't firing the strobe. So he had left to go get another uh, lens. And so we were going to be 45 minutes late and Walter Payton said that, you know, I explained this to him and this is Walter Payton, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> And he said, look, it's six o'clock, right? He's dead serious. I said, yeah. And he said, well, contract says six o'clock. I'm here at six o'clock and you're not ready to. No. And McMahon's eating pizza and drinking beer and not participating and helping at all. Right. And so Walter Payne said, I'm leaving. And he walked out the door and I'm I'm looking at McMahon. What do do I do? What do you know? I don't go to Walter Payne and say, get back in here, you know, and and I'm just, I'm thinking how screwed I am right now over that lens. And I told him it was Bill Smith because as long as he knew it was the photographer and he knew the photographer. And then he opened the door and stuck his head in and smiled like Jack Nicholson in The Shining and said, nah, just messing with me. You know, it was fun. He was Make a your great heart guy. race a little. Yeah, that's Walter fun. Payton was a great guy. Yeah. So what are some of your learning moments from them? Because you talked about how confident they were, but also the level of cockiness. But being around that many high level achievers, people who are aggressively attaining goals. What was your takeaway and growth experience by being in that environment? It was interesting meeting people and having an idea of meeting a guy, having an idea of what he would be like and having, and then actually meeting him and seeing what he really was like. That's fascinating to me because you meet somebody, you have an idea what he'd be like and you know, like Walter Payton was always really kind of serious. You know, when he was in front of the camera, he was very, very like he was sweetness. You know, he was kind of serious. You know, when he talked, he'd smile and stuff. He was always really kind, kind and and warm. But he was, he was a big wise ass, and he was really funny. And just he was a joker. And and he was, you know, he'd like grab your butt and he'd like throw something at you and you know or whatever. Just funny, just clowning around a lot. Always messing with you. Yeah, there, there was, there was one time when, when we went to take them, we went to, to their practice facility to show him and, and show Jim and Walter them. Oh, I've never told this story before. Uh, and to take to show Jim and Walter the Chicago Vice proofs. And so while we were there, Jim says, "You got to do a poster of Otis Wilson." I'm like, uh, "Yeah." And he goes, "Come here." And he he gathered everybody around, takes me over to Otis Wilson's locker, and he's just come back from the. Um, to, from the uh, shower and he's got a towel around his waist and a towel around his neck. And so he's gathering all the guys. So they clearly knew something that I did. And, and Mc, Walter Payne starts tugging on the, on the towel that, that Otis Wilson had around his waist. And McMahon says, he goes, so here's the concept. Here's your Costacos brothers poster. Oh, he says, you dress him up like a cop. You pull, you open the fly and pull it out. And then Walter finally had yanked the towel off Otis Wilson and he goes, the nightstick <laughs> to applause from all the guys, right? <laughs> the whole team was in on this. 
Oh yeah, I mean they were all yeah. You know, so it's, it's just one of those guy moments, you know. Yeah, professional locker room, not something everybody gets to experience. Oh, my. oh man, they probably have to be so careful what they do nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. But they were free to do, you know, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, you're building relationships with these guys, like you're around them all the time. And now, so I want to fast forward a little bit because you have a time limit. These posters are making a comeback, right? Like, so when did you stop making the posters under your and your brother's brand and label? We sold, we sold the business uh, in 1996 and then it got sold. It, it was sold to a company called Daydream Publishing in Indianapolis. Uh, and then it got sold three times after that, but it was combined. It had been combined with a calendar company and calendars and posters just don't work under the same company. I don't think that they anybody was ever to really mesh those. And the reason for that is at that time, calendar sales, if you're the salesperson selling calendars, you sell them, you know, at the end of the year, November, December, you're taking your orders and then they get delivered, you know, late summer, you know, and, uh, and posters were nobody orders their full supply of posters before the end of the season. They, you know, somebody throws, five touchdown passes or runs for 200 yards and the phones are ringing off the hook. We need more posters. And so you can print posters a lot quicker. And I think a lot of the calendars take a lot more time. And so that's a, it was an entirely different business. So, um, so it got sold three more times after that, but I keep getting contacted from people who ask me if I have any more of these or, or that one. And I don't know if you read the thing at the beginning of the book, I was in the office just a few years ago and I found this, it was a letter. It was dated 1999, I think. And it had been unopened. It was from a dad who, whose son, like his favorite poster was the Bash Brothers. And the kid was distraught because the poster was destroyed. He wanted to know if there were any others. And it was 1999. Somehow it was just sitting at the office. It had been unopened. It was three years after we sold the company. I did a whole, it spent, I spent hours, a bunch of hours trying to find it. Well, how am I going to find it? It had an address and I got the last name, you know, uh, you know, it was Tim Jacoby. And so I finally, you know, it was in San Diego. So I tried everything from that address, looking it up on Zillow. When was it last sold? Trying to figure out anyone I could find that. And then I started looking for that name and I found him. And oh, guess really? what? That, that, that little kid is in the um, autographed memorabilia business now. He's in his 30s. No way. So I found him and uh, I found him on uh, through uh, a bunch of searches and then finally found him on Facebook. I photographed the letter and I said, was this your dad? <laughs> he wrote back and said, yeah. And I said, okay, I have your poster for you. Where do I send it? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> What year 20, was this 20, that you sent it? Four years ago, maybe. <laughs> like 2017 or 18. Yeah. Almost 20 years after he's looking for this poster. Uh Yeah. So I I get people all the time and and then people will call me up and go, they just showed your poster on Monday night football of the, of the dome patrol, you know, and that stuff's fun. You know, I like that. That's really fun. When people get a hold of me, there's a guy in Colorado who's a high school uh, vice principal. I think he's a principal or vice principal named CJ Cade. He's awesome. He has like the biggest collection of our stuff. And he told me the story about how he and his buddy would get on their bikes up. And I think it was in Michigan where they grew up. And he told me the store that they would go to and see what was new from the Kostakos brothers. So that, you know, that makes me happy. 
why wouldn't it you know but the, there are some there are some galleries with your posters in them that are kind of coming back to light is that is that correct yeah well, that gallery show they did in, in new york like 10 years ago that sold out on opening night for 2500 bucks a piece you know there were 37 of them and dana white came in and bought the whole thing because he saw a rod in there and he, he wanted to beat a rod yeah what's that like i mean you got you got guys like Dana White coming in and saying this stuff is awesome. Dana White was nobody even knew who Dana. I mean, nobody even knew UFC. It wasn't even a thing in 1996. And now you got this guy who has made the UFC. He's put the UFC on the map, and, and he's in there buying your your posters. What's that like? Man, it was awesome. It was like the coolest thing ever. You know, we made these posters for kids. You know, and I just thought, hey, it's my past life. I made these posters, and it was fun, and a bunch of kids and and even grown up fans enjoyed them. And, you know, it's fun. I get a few letters here and there and, you know, a bunch of people find me on, on Facebook and want to talk about the poster and, you know, ask if we have any more copies of them. And then the next thing I know, get Dana White's buying them and there's this big art gallery and, you know, you just, wow, I guess, I guess these things, you know, I guess they had an impact. They had a, you know, there was a, a guy named Chris Ballard wrote something really nice around that time at uh in, in sports illustrated and he talked about the walls so he started off seeing the walls of a of a teenage kid's room or our sacred you know territory and you put up all the stuff that you love the most and he described what he had up there but he said my most prized possession right in the middle and he described it, it was his ronnie lott poster and you know what i think what you had when you're a kid you remember all of that stuff there's so much emotion when you're a kid you're feeling about your heroes i suppose or you know or the things, the people and things that inspire you. And I think you, you carry that with you as a grown up. Yeah, absolutely. That's why these have such a big pool, I think. And they're making a comeback. They're going to be released online as non-fungible tokens, right? So you guys are starting a new venture? Yeah, they're, they're, um, it's like we're putting the band back together, like in the Blues Brothers, you know, the, um, <laughs> the uh, you know, the, I had a bunch of people contact me about doing this. And I had, I had written up a business plan to make new posters and, and do some things years ago. Uh, and I, cause I felt like everything's going digital. And, uh, and so I thought about it. And once I had kept in touch with Jeff Morad, he was, he was the first agent that I, that I met with. And anyway, his, uh, and he and I remained friends and, you know, he and I had just talked about stuff like that. You know, it was like, what are you doing now? You ever thinking about making more posters? Yeah, maybe when it becomes all digital and, and it can be authenticated. So anyway, a whole bunch of people called me and, and I, I started talking to, you know, a lot of really capable people that were starting NFT companies. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, what, what I knew, I knew what blockchain technology was. I didn't know what the, what the NFT exactly stood for. And then I had to, to learn this the best way I can understand it which is it's a piece of code embedded into the digital art piece that authenticates it. And to me, blockchain is kind of like Carfax. It follows it around you, you know, it's kind of, so you know, you know, exactly where it's been and where it's purchased and it's authentic. And so I decided to work with, with the Morads and, and Jeff's son, Justin is, uh, he and I talk every day and we're working we, we did this fun drop with Willie Mays. I mean, getting Willie Mays as a client felt like, I mean, I, I photographed the signature page. Okay. It felt like when we signed Kenny Easley, when I got Kenny, when we, my brother and I were like staring at Kenny Easley's uh, signature on 
the contract and going, holy crap, Kenny Easley is our client. And I, we, I remember after we shot the poster, we went down to FX McCrory's, which was two blocks from where we shot it and had a beer. And we're like, holy crap, we just, what are we doing? We just shot a poster with Kenny Easley. What do we do next? And so I, I have in my phone a picture of Willie Mays' signature. And, and it felt like the same way we got his signature. Now, what do we do? <laughs> and, and, and I used to, I used to say to my brother, like, cause he's more cautious than I am. And, and so sometimes, you know, sometimes I needed him to pull me back and sometimes he didn't meet, he needed me to, to push us both forward. And we, we had the slogan. I still have that. Where is it? It's framed here somewhere. It said over, around, or through whatever the obstacle was, it was over, around, or through. It, there was a lot of now, what do we do? And we used to say, well, sometimes you got to put the cart before the horse. And when you do that, you find out how fast your horse can run. When you get really smart, when you have your own business, God, do you get smart? It's like, you just get, you learn so much so fast when everything is going to affect you financially. And that there's that fear over behind you of completely failing and like going under. There's nothing that motivates you more than that. It's like swimming and have a shark chasing you, you know. That element of uh, necessity <laughs> makes a big difference, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, you know, four years, four years of college and two years of, you know, a lot of like good business school at the University of Washington. And, and then, boy, do you learn, you learn a, when it's, when it's relevant and applicable to you. Uh, wow. <laughs> you learn a lot. So anyway, the, the NFTs are, they're, you know, this Willie Mays thing was really fun. And so, all right, let's try these digital pieces and see how they go. And um, and so we're talking to the clients and we have some, um, you know, talked to a lot of our former clients and they're in. And so, and I've even reached out to uh, recently, I, I got an idea, um, got an idea because I'm in Seattle. I love DK Metcalf. And so I got an idea out to his agent. I don't know what he's going to say because I don't know him. I used to know all the agents. Yeah, you took a hiatus from this world for a little bit, right? Yeah, now, now I have to hope they call me back. <laughs> You're not just having dinner with them anymore. We may do, and and we're we may do something. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for talking about. It. I think I'm supposed to keep it under wraps. We have something coming, uh, uh, um, uh, something that we're going to shoot with Jim McMahon. I think pretty soon it's going to be kind of fun and it may have some relevance to remember when he mooned the helicopter in the uh do you, do you know this story okay you got to look up jim mcmahon mooning okay and so what happened is he got he got hit in the lower back while he was sliding in the nfc championship game so nobody knew if he was going to play in the super bowl he had a really bad back injury and so nobody knew if he was practicing and the bears didn't tell anybody and so in the Super Bowl in 86 was uh, New Orleans. So uh, they flew, one of the local television stations flew a helicopter over the practice field to see if McMahon was practicing or not. So if you see the photo, it's a black and white. He's bent all the way over, dropped his shorts and moon the helicopter. And his answer was, they want to see how my back was. So I thought I'd show him. And, and if you look at my favorite part of that photo, if you look up in the upper left-hand corner, there's Steve McMichael standing there. He's got this, this like teenage boy smirk on his face laughing. Grinning, yeah, just grinning. It could be, you know, it could be something having to do with Jim McMahon's butt. So the, the non-fungible tokens, we don't need to get into this, but just to explain that a little bit, like 
the code makes it so that it's a unique piece of art that no one else can duplicate, right? Like I have the rights to see, even if you screenshot it, you don't actually own it because the blockchain tracks it and says, this is one unique individual piece. Yeah, it's like, uh, or, or one of 25, if you purchase number eight of 25, that authenticates it. Like if you buy a piece of art or a print and, and you have the, you know, you know, you buy it from a gallery or wherever, and you've got number eight of 25 and it's got the artist's signature on it and something to authenticate it, you know, it's yours. You know, you got, you got number eight out of 25. Well, the, the NFT does that for the digital piece. You know, you own it. So what is somebody who's like a poster? The thrill is to put that on your wall as a teenager. What is the opportunity you see within this new market? Because it's, it is at its very beginning, but there's some people really capitalize on it now. What is the opportunity you see for the work that you do in this space? Well, number one, in the digital world, I can make it look whatever I want, like whatever I want to. There's almost no limits on what it can look like. But the NFT portion of it means that I can make a digital piece of art. I can sell it online without having to ship anything. And, and so it's really direct to the consumer and whoever's buying it, the collector can buy it and they can hang on to it. And if they want to sell, like if you own a regular hard piece of art, like that number eight of 25, you got that on your wall. If you want to sell it, where are you going to sell it? You know, how do you find a place to go sell it to somebody else? If you're done with it, you don't want it anymore. Well, this is something you can sell to somebody. Now with a lot of people are probably going to be displaying their NFTs on their television, or they might have a frame uh, that's Samsung frame TV that scrolls through, you know, has a, like a slideshow that might be part of it. But I also think that, that there is, that there seems to be a lot of interest in, in um, scarce things. You know, if, if it's a good piece of art and people want it, you know, or it's a great photo of somebody and it's limited. I think a lot of people are banking on these being valuable because here's the thing. If you got a, print on your wall well you know it could get broken it could get wrecked it could get you know you know there are a lot of things that could go wrong with it. it's digital it's there forever it's on the blockchain it's there a hundred years from now and that's there a thousand years from now what a cool unique opportunity and for you to seize this and bring your art back to light it's it's really cool to bring this back to life because i know it means so much to so many people that were grew up with this as part of their their pop culture and sports memorabilia We'll see if we can do it again. I mean, it's the, the challenge is fun because in a way it's a brand new market back at that time. I mean, it is a brand new market, but in a, in a way it's similar to what we were doing before because the, the licensed sports products business was exploding right when we got into it. I mean, we were right at the beginning, right after we started is when it just grew up and, and Starter became a big company and all these other companies came in and it was, it became big. And so right now, I mean, I loved working with the players. I love creating, you know, unique stuff. Who knows if I'm going to get DK Metcalf. He already might have a, a deal to do something else, but he's such a great player and he's in Seattle and he's got that blue hair. I'll tell you the concept. He's wearing only football pants. We paint him up in Seahawks neon green. Uh, we put one football in each hand that he's that that will blow the seams out so it looks like he squashed him with his hands and he's flexing with his shirt up which he loves doing right right and we the title is the incredible hulk h-a-w-l-k nice and we could do the incredible bulk but the incredible hulk is fun 
it's DK man. I mean, he's perfect for it. Yeah, I, I like it. Are the, yeah. Where do these strokes of genius come from? Do you just sit in a room and doodle and draw out ideas or try to connect dots? Where does your creative light come from? A lot of it, it just comes from the, the from some cloud somewhere. I I don't know where it comes. From. I really about I don't eight or nine years ago when when the Legion of Boom was big. The um, Quirky Truen, the Seahawks photographer, called me up and he just said, "Hey, can you come up with an acronym for Boom?" You know, one of the guys was asking, "What you know?" Or somebody said, "Hey, what what does Boom stand for?" They said, oh, "It's Boom." And somebody said, "You know, can it mean something?" So Quirky called me up, and I just. I, on the top of my head, I said, bashing opposing offenses mercilessly. And he said, where does that come from? I said, I don't know. It was the first time I really thought about it. I don't know where it comes from. I'm good with, with the rhythm of language and rhymes and things like that. And so, oh, I got to tell you something fun, though. You know who Lupe Fiasco is? Yeah, the musician? Yeah. So the first point, I just met him last week, right? His dad was the one that loaned me the uh the samurai armor for mike singletary's poster and i didn't know that until i was writing the book and i wanted to know what happened to his dad because his dad was an amazing guy his name was greg jaco and he worked teaching karate to kids in the roughest neighborhood that i have ever been in my life like it was and he did it he said these kids in this neighborhood got they have two options gangs and drugs or karate with me and he chose to work there with these kids he was he, he left a really strong impression on me in the two times that i met him anyway so when i was writing i i, I wanted to find out what had happened to greg because i wanted to write about that when on, on the mike singletary story in the book and i I, re, I found out that he had died a few years back and i found uh one of his friends and i talked to him and he told me that his son became uh, a grammy award-winning rapper named lupe fiasco and my first thought is that is, for a guy that creates nicknames that is such a cool cool nickname i wish i had come up with it you know and anyway yeah and i love that name and he contacted me uh through twitter because he had been in a sporting uh card store or something he saw the poster he knew his dad's samurai armor had been used in the poster but he never knew the story and he saw the poster in this store this card store and he uh there was this, I think it was a sports memorabilia store and it had a special thanks to Greg Jaco and he just wanted to know the story. So he, he found me on Twitter and direct messaged me, gave my number. He called me and, and it was like, it was really, really amazing. This guy was, he was really touched by the, the fact that his dad made such a profound impression on me when I met him. And so he did a show in Seattle last week and I got to see him. It was my first rap concert. You know, I'm the oldest guy there, I'm sure, but it was really cool. And he gave me a shout out in the middle of the show. That was kind of fun. It was it was a really fun show and it was really cool. That was kind of fun. But that nickname, Lupe Fiasco, that is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> I'm tugged on you a little. You like it? <laughs> yeah. You know, damn, I didn't come up with that. You know? <laughs> That's so fun. So looking back on your success, I mean, you were 22, 23 when you started, you had no idea that this was going to blow up like it did. What advice would you give to somebody who has an idea or who has that passion to make something happen, but doesn't have any idea how? I would say ask a lot of questions. If you have something, an idea on how to make something, start asking people where you can make it, you know, uh, find out, you know, if you find somebody in that industry, find out how it's sold. 
I would say, number one, ask a lot of questions. And I would always say, I tell us all, I say this all the time. Everyone is one yes answer to, from being on their way to something great for them. You know, one person says, one person says yes, and you're on your way. I mean, that's crazy. Kenny easily said yes. The defensive player of the year said yes to a couple guys with no experience. So if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. How many no's did you get along that process? Like you got, you got Kenny easily to say yes. How many people said no first or after Kenny easily, how many people said no? And then you had to figure out a way to get somebody to say yes again. Nobody really. I mean, nobody. Mark Bavaro, I talked to him at the pro bowl. He was a real quiet guy and he, he wasn't interested though. I would say, I mean, he was, he, he was a great player and they, they'd won the super bowl in, uh, in 87 the Giants. I just remember having a conversation with him. Lawrence Taylor introduced me to him and he said, nah, it's not my thing. So uh, I remember that. And we, we did have some Nike. Uh, we were going to shoot Michael Jordan in studio and Nike wouldn't let him do it. And mostly because we, we, we kicked their butt in the marketplace. Look, they're, they're Nike. They're a big company. And it was really simple the way posters were sold at that time. If you're a Nike sales rep and you got the territory in the state of Washington or Eastern Washington or whatever, well, you're making money selling shoes and apparel back then. The time that it took to sell posters and manage that and the racks in the stores, it was they weren't going to make nearly enough money for the time it was worth. So all we did was sell posters. So we had a real advantage. Plus, the stores wanted one vendor and we could give them uh, Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan through what eventually was the NBA Players Association license. You know, Nike can only give them Michael Jordan, but, you know, these stores wanted Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, too, and Isaiah Thomas. So we, because of our license, we eventually got licensed with the league, and we kind of thanked Nike for that because they we had a three-poster deal with Michael Jordan, and they nixed it because they had uh, a lot of sway over what he did, and and uh, or some, at least. And so they said no. And so uh, we used our players associate. We got the player rights. We eventually did such a good job that we were distributing Nike's posters for them because our distribution was so good. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Nike, there, there were some people at Nike that didn't, that didn't like how, success, how well we were doing. And we were doing pretty well with their athletes. And like they... There, I remember asking Bo Jackson's agent that that ball player poster of him is awesome. The one with him, the Nike one with his the bat behind. He's got the shoulder pads on. He's got the bat over his shoulders. It's such a cool poster, and he has such a great face. I mean, it's a great shot. And uh, I remember asking how many, and that had been out longer than our black and blue poster. And I asked him how many were sold, and he he grabbed the file and he said fifty nine thousand. I said, okay, cool. And he said, well, how many black and blues have you guys sold? I said, 800,000. That was kind of fun. And then Sporting Goods Dealer, the magazine, the trade magazine uh, publication, they had a deal where they had all of the buyers uh, rate their vendors. And Nike, in nearly in every category, they were like number one in everything. But in posters, they were number three uh, behind us and Starline. We were number one. Um, and Starline was second. Yeah, that was kind of fun. I have that that magazine somewhere. That's you know, like <laughs> You're a playing small with the big dogs. Victory, you know, oh wow, yeah. 
Yeah, that's a big company to see your name. Well, you get a letter from Nike giving you uh, a cease and desist on your Charles Barkley poster. You call your lawyer up and go, what do I do? And that's scary when you're a kid, when you're in your early 20s. Yeah, you had a bunch of those moments where I can see you getting scared and hitting the brakes. What kept you going? What kept you capable to pull, especially if your brother's more conservative? There are times where things stacked against you. Nike is a big one of those I could see making that first phone call to Easley's agent. You don't, nobody just picks up the phone and calls a professional athlete's agent, right? What, what allowed you to make those moves whenever you knew they were the right next move? Kind of an if then mentality. If we can get him, if we can get this, this is what's going to happen. It was like, if we can get Jim McMahon, we can get anybody. Well, if we can get to Kenny Easley, and, and he says, yes, then we're in business. You know, it, a lot of it was that. And if, you know, Nike, Nike presented an interesting opportunity. I really wanted to do some of the stuff for them because P- Peter Moore had left and there was a big void in there. What had happened before, there was a guy named, you know, love this name, Harry Johnson, who contacted us from Nike after our first year because Peter Moore had made their posters and they didn't have anybody doing their posters for them. And they wanted to talk to us. So we had a few meetings with him and then he left, you know, so we were in negotiation with him to see about creating their posters for them, which would have been great. But then he left to run something, I think overseas, like in Korea or something. I don't remember where, but uh, the person who replaced him, they just decided they were going to do their own. So after a few more meetings, they kind of milked us for information on the industry and what was going on. And then they said, ah, we're going to do our own. So we just went out and, 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 you know, it was like, you want to know it, there's nothing that'll scare you more than, than somebody in Nike saying, listen, we like you guys, you're good guys, but you're our competitor like anybody else. And we intend to, you know, we may put you out of business, you know? So when you hear that from a Nike person at the big company like that, you're like, okay. What strategic advantage do we have and what do we have to do to beat them? And number one, we made posters for kids. They made a lot of beautiful posters that might've made nice, nice ads, but like they had one, it was really nice. They had two with uh, Will Clark and Mark McGuire. They had, if you put them together, they, you know, one of them swinging from the left side, McGuire swinging from the right side and, and Will Clark swinging from the left side. And if you put the two posters together, you see the Bay Bridge and there's a sunset by and you see them from the back with this. All right. It was nice, but it's not the Bass Brothers, you know. Which one's cooler, you know, so we were making posters for kids and they had a lot of and it probably benefited us that we didn't have art design backgrounds. Right. No restrictions either from a big corporate company to kind of limit what you're what you portray in the imagery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think we're going to be able to have some fun. We're going to get, we're going to get some of the current players and we're going to get some of my former clients and, and there's going to be some fun stuff out there. I mean, we, we're, we're, Justin is great. He's young and he's like working his butt off and we're talking every day about what are we going to do here with the NFTs? And we're watching this brand new market and where it's going. And so I feel like it looks signing Willie Mays. I feel like I'm 24 again. And so talking to Justin is just like, what, what's, what about this opportunity? What about that? Do we pull back on this? Or maybe we 
try it that way. And we're, you know, and, and is it, should we go after this guy or this guy or, you know, everything that we're talking about is all, and it's fun. But I think that we're, I think the, the end result is going to be some, some really cool images that I think, you know, well, hopefully the fans are going to like, you know. What's the, the long-term vision? Cause it kind of felt like you fell into posters and maybe didn't have a long-term goal or vision for it. Is there an end game goal you have in mind for this new generation of this pop culture poster you're creating? I don't know that there is because the market is so new and we don't know where it's going. All I'm doing is, is trying to, all I'm doing is trying to create images and digital collectibles that the, that the fans and the, the NFT collectors and the sports collectors are going to like, because it's, it's a brand new market. It's fascinating to see what's happening. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to be pouring out on the market. It's kind of scary. It's, you know, it's, it was scary, you know, that, you know, we were successful before and yeah, is it a little scarier to, you know, get in the batter's box and take some swings when, when you're older, when you got nothing, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose when you're young, you know, confidence and ignorance is the best combination. When you're young, you have no idea what's going to get in your way. You just stick your head down and plow through the brick wall. Now you're older. It's like, okay, got to not think of like, you know, it's like, it's like the, it's like trying to make a comeback as a ball player, you know, if it sucks, you're like the guy who hung on too long, you know? So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll suck at it, but I don't think so. You got a brand uphold, right? Your name has some, some uh, legacy to it that you're infringing on if you screw this up. Yeah, you know, we are, but you know, some of what's carrying us, I've, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from people who are saying, look, we're happy you're back. What are you doing? Where the hell have you been? And honestly, nobody's been creating images like this in, an, in a digital age where it's so much easier. Why do you think that is? I don't know. We, it was hard for us. There were a lot of times that we found, uh, we had artists, a lot of guys, a lot of guys and girls, mostly guys, though, wanted to work for us. And, and there were sports fan graphic designers. A lot of them wanted to work for us. And, um, and we'd have some people who were really talented, but they just kind of didn't get it. They kind of, they were, they were looking at it from making something, you know, coming up with a rhyme, but it wasn't badass enough. We got to make the guy badass, you know, we got to make it look cool. And it wasn't, you know, and so we developed a culture there that, and maybe it was just, we, we, we were never able to really figure out a formula for what made a successful poster. It's come up with the one, the right one for a guy and hope it works. Seems to have worked out really well. John, you've spent a long time with us. We appreciate that. Where can people connect with you, get involved with your NFT business, or just reflect on some of the cool posters we probably had as kids? Where can we find you? Uh, the com. Awesome. We'll have that on That's the COS, COS Tacos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because that's how I was memorizing it. Because yeah. tacos. <laughs> yeah, I get Costecos, coast to coast. I get that all the time. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Can't forget tacos, though, man. <laughs> yeah. John, appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your story. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having me on.